this is Jane Gunn, the corporate peacemaker and author of How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom. And this podcast is about how we can each use the skills and tools of mediation and conflict resolution to deal with conflicts and disputes at work and at home. I'm speaking today with Marshall Goldsmith, who is a leading executive coach. He's an author of books and his best-selling book is What Got You Here Won't Get You There and his more recent book Mojo and what Marshall calls an executive educator. So hello, Marshall, and welcome. Hello, it's great to talk with you. So Marshall, tell us a little bit more about what an executive educator does. Well, I do three things. One is I teach classes. And when I say I teach classes, I travel around the world um, doing classes for executives on basically how do they change interpersonal behavior. My basic mission is helping already successful leaders achieve positive long-term change in behavior for themselves, for their people, and for their teams. So that is basically what I teach or speak about. Then I coach executives and actually help them achieve long-term change in behavior. Mm-hmm. have a very unique approach to coaching. I don't get paid if they don't get better. Mm-hmm. Better is not judged by them or me. It's judged by uh, everyone around them. And then I uh, write and edit books and articles. So those are the three things I do. And you're speaking to us from Spain today, so I think you have a, a busy traveling schedule. Yes, on American Airlines alone, I have over 10 million frequent flyer miles. <laughs> So, Marshall, your book, What Got You Here, Won't Get You There, sold, um, I think, a mitre, well over a million copies. And you focus in that book very much on relationship skills and things that are very familiar to me in the world of conflict resolution, such as listening, thanking um, people and apologizing. I mean, things that we would regard as common sense, but, but you're teaching executives at the top of their game. Do they need to be reminded of these things? No, of course they do. Uh, one of the common misconceptions is somehow when people get promoted to high levels, they are, should be omnipotent or godlike. Uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence in the history of the world that indicates that happens. People at the top have just as many issues as people at the bottom. Um, they just got promoted. Now, you, I can see you on our Skype interview, you appear to be an intelligent woman. I have a question for you. Have you ever read a history book before? Uh, yes, I've read history books. You, you have read history books. Now, I have another question. In the history of the world, have most people at high levels been women or men? Uh, men. Yeah, have they been younger or a little bit older? A little bit older. Is there anything in the history of the world that would lead you to believe when you take old men and you give them lots of status, money, and power, they begin to act excessively sane and rational? Did you read that book? <laughs> Not yet, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that book. (laughs) I missed it too. (laughs) And you talk a minute ago about long-term change. So is that something, you know, how do you go about initiating long-term change? Well, um, two points. One, we've done a study called Leadership as a Contact Sport. I have a website, www.marshallgoldsmithlibrary.com. If you go to that website, you can look up this study. 86,000 participants in eight major corporations. In our research, what we've shown is that we measure do people change over time. This is typically one year later. And we measure do they follow up with their coworkers. And we find that leaders that do extensive follow-up and stick with the plan tend to get better. And not surprisingly, leaders that do absolutely nothing don't improve. In my coaching, I don't get paid if people don't get better. And that's judged for about a year, a year and a half after I begin coaching them. 
not as judged by the person, by everyone around them. So you're asking their colleagues to give feedback to them and they have to collect that feedback themselves? No, I collect the feedback confidentially. Okay, okay. So the clue is um, sticking with a program and then getting feedback from colleagues, so not how you judge yourself but how others perceive whether you've changed or not. Exactly. Yeah. So Marshall, you also focus on 20 habits that people should stop doing, so that's interesting. Instead of you focusing on things that people ought to start doing, you focus on things that people ought to stop doing, and, and I've picked two or three of those out which sound very familiar again to me as a conflict resolver. Number one was winning too much. We all need to win at all costs. And the second one was um, many people, and I presume you're also referring to some of the executives you coach here, tend to start their sentences with no but or however. <laughs> so talk, talk us through those two. Well, the first one, winning too much. Uh, obviously, the people I work with are winners in a societal way. They are very successful. They've been promoted uh, against very long odds, against thousands of other people, and now they're at the top of multi-billion dollar corporations. The problem is winners just love to win. So if it's important we want to win, if it's meaningful we want to win, if it's trivial we want to win, and if it's not worth it we want to win. I have a case study that I mentioned in the book that 75% of my successful clients failed. I say, you want to go to dinner at restaurant X. Your husband, wife, partner, friend, or significant other wants to go to dinner at restaurant Y. Heated argument. You go to restaurant Y. It's not your choice. The food tastes awful. The service is terrible. Option A, critique the food. Point out our partner was wrong. This mistake could have been avoided and only listen to me, me, me. Or option B, shut up, eat the stupid food, try to enjoy it and have a nice evening. What would I do? What should I do? 75% of my clients, what would I do? Critique the food. Yes. What should I do? Shut up. Well, it's incredibly difficult for smart, successful people not to constantly go through life winning. Yeah. Yeah. One of my good coaching clients, and you're in the UK, was CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, J.P. Garnier. I asked J.P., what you learn about leadership as a CEO? He said, I learned a hard lesson. My suggestions become orders. Right. He said, if they're smart, they're orders. If they're stupid, they're orders. If I want them to be orders, it's orders. If I don't, they're still orders. Yes. Well, the problem is CEOs get to win all the time anyway. Yes. The more you get promoted, the more you need to learn. Let other people win. Yeah. Winning needs to be not about you, but them. One of the greatest leaders I ever met said, for the great achiever, it's all about me. For the great leader, it's all about them. It is very hard to make this transition from being a great achiever to a great leader. And, and that's one of the things we focus on in conflict resolution is getting people to stop thinking about what they need. Or not to stop thinking about it, but to think about what they need and what their interests and concerns are alongside other people. So if you can satisfy both of those things to a degree at the same time, then you're winning. Yes, and you mentioned the second one, no but, however. Yes. I had the privilege one night of having dinner with General Eric Shinseki, who was head of the United States Army. General Shinseki is a brave man who's been shot twice, a national hero. He had the nerve to stand up to Donald Rumsfeld, who was Secretary of Defense, and point out the Iraq War would take a lot of troops and cost money and was publicly chastised for telling the truth. Well, we were having dinner, and he said to me, Marshall, who's your favorite customer? I said, sir, my favorite customer is smart, dedicated, hardworking, driven to achieve, creative, entrepreneurial, cares about the company, cares about the customers, gets results. 
and it's a stubborn, opinionated know-it-all who never wants to be wrong. And we're in a whole room filled with two to four-star generals. I said, sir, do you think any of the generals in this room may fit this description? He looked at me and goes, Marshall, we have a target-rich opportunity. <laughs> well, I love this, it. <laughs> no, this no-but, however, thing is great for stubborn people. Yeah. If some, somebody talks to us, the first word of our mouth is no, what do we just say? You're wrong. But, what does but mean? Disregard everything that you just said. And however is a fancy word for but. <laughs> and so, uh, just teaching people not to start sentence with no but, however, makes a great impact. One of my clients was stubborn and opinionated. I'm reviewing his 360-degree feedback report. He said, but Marshall. I said, that's free. If you ever talk to me again, and I, you start a sentence with no but or however, I'm going to fine you $20. Yes. He said, but Marshall, 20 No, 40 No, 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 68 yen. He lost $420 in an hour and a half. And, and I, I watched you, Marshall, do this in a room full of people. And, you know, you, you raise uh, many, many thousands of dollars for, for charity by, uh, by proving that people find it so hard to stop doing these things, which is fantastic. <laughs> no. I, by the way, I, I find people money for this. I've raised $450,000 for charity by doing this. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> At least if we're going to have our bad habits pointed out to us, we might as well feel it's in a good cause. Yes. <laughs> Marshall, I, I focus a lot on my work on how executives transfer conflict from the workplace to home and vice versa. And that they, sometimes they're not looking at how those two sets of relationships impact on each other. You know, I always regard the spouse or partner at home as being a stakeholder in the business. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if that's something you see a lot of as well. Not a hundred percent of the time, but the huge majority of the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what we do at work, we tend to do home. Also, my daughter Kelly and I have done some research, and we have compared uh, the experience of happiness and meaning in life at work with the comparison with the experience of happiness and meaning in life at home, and the results are amazingly positive. The correlation is very high. So, people who have meaningless Miserable lives at work tend to have meaningless, miserable lives at home. Yes. And my experience is that, you know, if they have a conflict in the workplace, they tend to take that home with them, literally, and that will spill over. It will have a knock-on effect to their relationships at home. And then vice versa, they'll bring a conflict from home into the workplace, and that will impact. And then it impacts on, if you t take it to its logical conclusion, the productivity and uh, of the organization. Yeah, uh, my favorite three lines in my new book, Mojo, are these. Our default reaction in life is not to experience happiness. Our default reaction in life is not to experience meaning. Mm. Our default reaction in life is to experience inertia. Mm. We all tend to do what we've done, go where we go, and say what we've said, and be in the mood we've been in. And if you're in a bad mood at work, you tend to bring it home, and bad mood at home, you tend to bring it to work. Yeah. And Marshall, you're a, a Buddhist. Um uh, by you know that's a, a set of beliefs that you adhere to both in your private life and your work life and I wanted to just ask you you know what that might have taught you personally about managing conflicts well um, my coaching process is pretty much very Buddhist and my I'm, a, I'm not a religious Buddhist I'm a philosophical Buddhist yes my school of Buddhism is a simple school Basically, this is heaven, this is hell, this is nirvana. It's not on the outside, it's on the inside. Yes. And in terms of conflict, uh, Buddhism is very helpful. 
Peter Drucker, although he wouldn't necessarily say he was a Buddhist, had a lot of Buddhist-like philosophy. Uh, one lesson Peter Drucker taught me, it's a very Buddhist point, every decision is made by the person who has the power to make the decision. Make peace with that. Not the right person or the smart person or the good person or the prettiest person. It's made by that person. In terms of conflict resolution, very few people make peace with this seemingly obvious point. Mm. Um, huge amount of life is spent whining because it's not right, it's not fair, uh, they shouldn't have done this, whatever. Uh, the reality is every decision is made by the person who has the power to make the decision. Once you make peace with that, if you influence that person, you make a positive difference. If you do not influence that person, you do not make a positive difference. Mm. And don't torture yourself because decision makers make decisions. Mm. Uh, what would you say is the hardest lesson that you've learned along the way? I would say the hardest lesson for many people is making peace. Yeah. Make peace with what is. Yes. And one of the things I find that, particularly in conflict resolution, is it's making peace with yourself. So, for example, somebody might go through a whole court process and come out of the end with many thousands of pounds or dollars, so they've won, in inverted commas, but they're still not at peace with themselves. And, yeah. and therefore, what I do, the mediation process, is about taking them to a place where they can be at peace with where they've got to and move on with their lives. And I think you're right in saying that that's a place that many people don't get to. It's very hard to make peace with what is, to forgive other people for being who they are. You don't have to like them and respect them or agree with them. Just accept they are who they are and forgive yourself for being who you are. That's interesting. So what would be a final key message you would have for, for our listeners today, Marshall? Well, my final message is take a deep breath. Imagine you're 95 years old. You're just getting ready to die. But right before you take your last breath, you're given a wonderful gift. The ability to go back in time and talk to the person who's listening to me. What advice would the wise old person, who knows what really mattered and what didn't, have for the you that's listening to me now? Mm. Try to imagine that. Whatever advice that person would have for you, do that. My friend interviewed old folks who were dying, and three themes come up. Number one is be happy now. Not next week, not next month, not next year. Be happy now. The great Western disease is I'll be happy when. When I get the status, the money, the BMW, the condominium, I will be happy when. We all have exactly the same when. That old person looking at death, that is when for all of us. Learning point from old people is I got so wrapped up looking at what I didn't have, I missed what I did. Uh, I've asked thousands of parents around the world this question. When my child grows up, I want my child to be. One word comes up in the answers from parents more than every other word combined. What's that word? Happy. Now you want your kids to be happy. You want people to love you to be happy. You want your parents to be happy. The people who are with you to be happy. You go first. You be happy. Learning two friends and family. Uh, do whatever you can to build positive relationships with people that you love. And, and at work, do whatever you can to help people. Not so much just because it's going to help you get promoted or be ahead, but because the 95-year-old will be proud of you because you did. And then finally, if you have a dream, go for it. Because if you don't when you're 25, you may not when you're 85. And it doesn't have to be a big one, maybe a little one. Go to New Zealand or speak Spanish or, or um, drive a sports car. Other people may think you're crazy. Who cares? It's not their life, it's yours. Fantastic, Marshall. Thank you so much um, for those thoughts.
Well, Marshall, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you today. Um, I know I've learned a lot from the interview and I'm sure the listeners have too. Thank you very much. Thank you.